Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Trade Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Trade Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. So St. Your Grandma's Rhea, folks, no guru bullshit from the front, no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. RDI is also this podcast where I sit down with multiple people and I have multiple shows and we cover all things investor friendly here for Metro Detroit, Michigan, and the world. And I want to take a minute here, if you haven't already, and if you enjoy this podcast, rate and review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It really helps grow the podcast. And hey, it's a free podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Also, if you haven't already, please do share across social media. This stuff really does matter, and it really does help. And thank you to everybody who has been. There's a bunch of you, and I really appreciate it. If you have any uh, questions, go to RenegadeDetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. You can hit me up on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess, although you may have to help me use it. Still figuring that out. And of course, you go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer. In no way, shape or form. Should anything that I say or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice, we highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investor Show of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast and also hopefully for your week. And this is one of my favorite. And if you haven't watched this movie, you need to. It's an excellent example of what kind of sales people you could be. And what kind of salespeople you shouldn't be. There's excellent examples in that movie. And I find that few people rarely get the right lessons. So if you haven't already, go check it out. This week's quote is always be closing from the legendary, the one and only Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. That's a movie. Google it. One of my favorite of all time. Always be closing. And we are going to finish reading the book, The Conversion Code by Chris Smith. Finally, here, we're going to start on page 127. And we're going to go ahead and read till the end. If you're ready, so grab your book. You got your highlighter. Pull out your, uh, you got your highlighter, whatever you want to use. Uh, get comfy. Get yourself a cup of coffee. What do I got here? I got a Colombian micro lot from Hazano, Ferndale Nine Mile. Oh, yeah. It's going to give me the energy to read this book like a boss. You guys ready? Page 127. Open up. If you're driving in your car, I don't know. This one's kind of deep, though. We're, we're, we're deep in the technical part, right? We're starting on chapter 12, page 127. How to start closing an internet lead using the five yes technique. Once you uncover any possible objections or lack thereof, there's one last step before you start your pitch. It's called the five yes technique. Before I share with you how to do the five yes technique, I need to point out one critical thing that you must decide before you can proceed. Are you going to do a one-on-one -on -one or a two-call close? If it's a one-call close, you would roll into the five yes technique after you uncover objections and before you start your pitch using feature, benefit, tie down, which is covered in the next chapter. But I want to plead my case right now that most of you should use a two-call close. In fact, two-call closes are probably the right choice for most salespeople. 
I have developed what I call the 2020-20 sale that makes using a two-call close make a ton of sense and easy to do. The 2020-20 sale. The first 20 minutes is everything up until now. You would end your call after chapter 11 and you would tell them that you are going to call them back in 20 minutes to go over your proposal, product, or service because you want to spend some time customizing your presentation based on what they just told you. A good reason for breaking your call down into two calls is that it can be difficult, no matter how sharp your your sales skills may be, to get and keep someone excited enough to buy for 30 to 40 straight minutes. By building them up during the first 20 minutes and then spending the next 20 minutes customizing, fine-tuning, practicing your pitch, it becomes much easier during the last 20 minutes to get them above the buying line quickly and close while they are truly at an all-time excitement high. Another reason to employ the 20-20-20 sale, when you start a call knowing you are going to be pitching soon, you don't stay in the moment as well. You can start to cloud your early thoughts or make yourself nervous enough for it to come across in your tone if you have a closing on your mind. By only listening and taking notes during the first 20 minutes, all of those thoughts subside and you can truly focus on listening and digging deep. Conveniently, you also now have 20 minutes to think about and practice your pitch before you give it. Plus, if someone is 100% not going to buy, they will typically tell you not to bother calling back to pitch anyways. Just there saying, yes, call me back in 20 minutes. I'm excited to see what you've come up with usually means they are closable. The five yes technique. Whether you decide to do a one or two call close, the way you use the five yes technique is the same. Here is what it looks like. Number one, earlier you said X when I asked you why. Is that true? Number two, earlier you said X when I asked you why. Is that true? Number three, earlier you said X when I asked you why. Is that true? Earlier, number four, earlier said X when I asked you why. Is that true? Finally, either you said X when I asked you why. Is that true? I am certainly oversimplifying this for effect, but not by much. You literally read them back five of the digging deep questions and their answers and then ask them to agree that this is indeed the case. All right, going off script here. How can we use this in real estate? I'm thinking live because I haven't read this page, right? So number one, well, you, you said you had to sell in the next 30 days, correct? Yes. And you said you had to get at least get $15,000 so you can move out of state, correct? Yes. Well, this offer does solve those problems. It closes before you leave for 30 days. Um, and it puts the $15,000 you need in your pocket. That would it be, that would make you able to move and close and do everything you want to do, correct? Yes, you see where I'm going with this, right? Whatever your case is, you don't have to pay, commit, whatever, right? I think that makes sense, what he's trying to do here. Um, All right, back to the book. This is why digging deep was so important and why I told you to write down what they said earlier. We are placing their answers to those digging deep questions in our five yes script. Here is an example of a mortgage officer using the five yes technique. Number one, earlier you told me your current loan amount is $330,000. Is that correct? Number two, earlier you said your current interest rate is 5%. Is that right? Number three, earlier you said you're tired of paying so much month to, uh, to taxes and interest and so little to principal. Correct? 
earlier you said I could save you at least $200 a month working together. Would that make sense? Remember? Finally, you said your actual goal was not so much to save money on your mortgage as it was to start putting more money away for your kids' college funds. Is that how you plan the use of savings if we get this loan approved? As you can see, I reiterated a bunch of the logical questions, but also worked some more emotional ones and toward the end. You always want one of your yes questions to be that they said they would move forward if it made sense. And you always want to make your fifth yes their number one emotional reason for buying. That's why you dig deep. Now, they have to say no to their word and to saving money for their kids' college funds, not to me. Be sure you are writing down your five yeses as you go along on the one close call. Another benefit of doing a two close call is that you can flip your script over to the back and literally write out the five yeses that you will use on them and what your feature slash benefit slash tie downs covered in the next chapter will be there. There are way too many salespeople who think they are too cool for a script or to jot down a quick game plan before they pitch. Grow up. If you want to make big money annually in sales, you have to be willing to do the small things daily. Our ultimate goal is a yes, I want to buy what you sell. But to get there most frequently, just before you start your pitch, use the five yes technique. You'll be amazed at how it shifts the power and momentum over to your side when it really matters as you're about to start your pitch. Chapter 13, how to pitch using the feature benefit tie down technique and identify exactly when to close. Everyone sells features. The best salespeople sell features and benefits and then tie down. Features are what you do. Benefits are why it matters to the lead. Tie downs ensure the lead agrees throughout the pitch that the various features would benefit them. As an example, I would say on a call to start my pitch, Curator is going to set up and maintain Facebook ads for you. This is a feature. By doing this, by doing this, a steady flow of hot new leads that include names, phone numbers, and email addresses will be in your inbox each day, ready for you to close them. Benefit. Does that sound like something that would help your business tie down? Then I would do it again using another FB. Feature benefit tie down. Curator is also going to build you a world class website, landing pages, and blog feature that we use as the bait in the Facebook ads we run for you. It is always nice to tie the modules together when appropriate. Your clients, friends, and peers are going to tell you how much they love it and send you more referrals benefit. Plus, the people who check you out online before they contact you will be pre sold benefit. Is that the kind of web presence you're looking for? The tie down. Pro tip you can also use fear blended into your feature benefit tie down modules when appropriate. This is where you would purposely point out a negative thing they are experiencing right now, in addition to the positive features of them buying what you sell, identifying, and pouncing on their fears and pain points are often quicker paths to a sale than bells and whistles could ever be. Adding fear makes the sale about healing, not helping, which for many in the buying button, that needs to be pressed the hardest. Instead of saying, do you want the best website in your industry? I might say, would a website like ours help you feel less embarrassed when people check you out online? The template that could be used for feature benefit tie down FBT, I'm going to call it that from here on, for any business is simple. Here is what we do. 
here is how we do benefits you. Do you agree there's a benefit in what we do? Just ask yourself two simple questions. What makes my business great? What makes my business unique? The answers to those questions is where your FBT material should stem from. By the way, of all the things I've covered, let me again remind you of the importance of tone, particularly that yours should be full of enthusiasm, I am sold myself, during your pitch. But there is really no need to overthink this. If what you sell is great, there should be several features you can point out during your pitch. Find that four to six well-thought-out FPTs, all of which can script and practice in advance, seem to accomplish my goals of getting them more excited about buying than the cost, which allows them to proceed to the next step, closing them. The simple yet highly effective improvement sales formula is rarely being executed. And even when it is, it's not being done consciously or properly. When you compare someone who only pitches features, Curator is going to set up and maintain Facebook ads for you. To someone who pitches features and benefits, Curator is going to set up and maintain Facebook ads for you. By doing this, a steady flow of hot new leads that include names, phone numbers, and email addresses will be in your inbox each day, ready for you to close them. Benefit. The difference is crystal clear. We actually use FB and T in our day-to-day lives a lot without knowing it, especially if you have children. I constantly use FBT on my daughter, Maya, who can be a challenge sometimes to get to do things without being asked several times. Here is how you can even use FBTs on your kids. Maya, I need you to clean your room feature right now. Cleaning your room will give you more space to play and make it smell better, thus making your friends want to come over. Benefit. Will it be clean when I come back to check on it in 10 minutes so we can invite Sophia over? Tie down. Always be closing. The easiest way to remember FBT is to just think of it as the literal incarnation of the famous and oft-used sales quip from Dave Mamet's Glengarry Glenn Ross. Always be closing. Going off script here. This is an amazing movie. I know I talked about it earlier. You need to go watch it if you are in sales. It's an excellent movie. It's entertaining. You can watch it with your kids. Um, no, I'm just kidding about that. It's swearing, but uh, there's it's terrible. It's rated R. Don't do that unless they're older. Uh, but you can watch it. It's entertaining to watch. I'm not sure if your spouse will like it. I like it. But there's great examples of how to close, how how to have the right attitude, what not to be too. There's a lot of what not to be in there. When I watch that several times, I'm like, boy, I know what kind of salesperson I want to be versus the kind I don't want to be. So that's what he's talking about. Back to the book. With each module of FBT you complete, you are closing during your pitch as opposed to just one big close at the end. These mini closes force the lead to agree that they need and want what you sell before you ask them to buy it with your real close at the end. If you're only talking features and even benefits, but you are not using a tie down, you will be amazed at how well they work, empowering you and giving you a uh, clear psychological advantage over your caller. As you proceed through features, benefits, and tie downs during your perfect pitch, there will be a moment when the person's excitement is higher than the cost of what you sell. Identifying this moment is critical. This is why I never forgot this chart. When you're great at inside sales, you are laser focused on getting to this moment at all times. With each module of feature, benefit, tie down, we're taking them up the equivalent of one stair. 
With some people, you have to climb five stairs to close them. For some, it's only three. For others, it's seven. Prepare the most compelling seven to eight feature benefit tie downs you can come up with. But what we're really looking to do is to place one strategically in the middle of our highest value item. At Curator, we just don't run the FBTs of our technology and strategies. We also know a big part of why we get hired is because we do all the setup for our clients. We get their Facebook ads, their website, landing pages, their CRM, their monthly email marketing campaigns, and so forth. While we could certainly lead with this, instead, it's the landmine we place at the end that is more likely than not to be the stair that gets them over the buying line. And the chart they're referring to is on page 133. It's figure 13.1. And it's the heart on the x-axis and the time on the y-axis, and it's a parabola, right? So it goes all the way up, all the way down, and there's a line going across the top of it where it's just isolating the very top of uh, the parabola at the very top. Um, I don't know. That might be a sine wave. Whatever. That's that's the time to strike, right? When their love of the product and their appreciation and the excitement of the product Versus the amount of time that he's referring to match. And it's different for everybody. Save a juicy module for your final FBT. We get them excited about the Facebook ads, the leads that will be coming in, the marketing that will take place. And now the final feature is that we do it for you. Benefit is that you don't even have to do any grunt work. By hiring curator, you can spend your time on the money-making activities that you enjoy. You get to keep your focus on people while we focus on your pixels and passwords. Tie down. Does that sound like the kind of partnership you're looking for? Yes. That's the moment we close. Some people only need two FBTs. Some people will close themselves after the very first FBT. Offscript, Grant Cardone talks about this, right? He says, close before the close, close right away. Just close as often as possible just to check in to see how you're doing. I think that's what he's talking about here. Don't be afraid to to make the ask early if you're getting a lot of signals that they're excited and it's the right time. All right, back to the book. I can feel their energy over the phone, mostly through the tone of their voice. So it's a okay to 100% they abandon the rest of your FBTs and close. If you're 100% certain they are above that buying line after just one or two, just say, great. So here's what happens next. Sometimes you'll get to the moment that works almost every time and you'll know in your gut that they're not ready. You can probably tell from their tone. Remember, tone is 55% of how humans communicate. The reality is that while you are trying to build a framework that creates that moment like clockwork, every lead is different. So listen intently to how they answer the tie downs. Pro tip, sandbag a few additional knockout features in case they are not sold enough to buy after the first four or five. Don't save the worst two things you do for when you need them the most. If they weren't impressed enough by your big feature to close them, you'll need to impress them with something else. By the way, some people you'll never get that they are all ready to close feeling from, but it's still your job to eventually just close them anyway. What he's saying there is just don't be afraid to ask, right? Some people are doing it and they don't get much feedback and they just get afraid to ask, right? Don't be afraid to ask. When the FBTs have worked properly, you will have the lead over the buying line and they're officially ready to be closed. When you do that, identifying, when you do identify that moment, 
Here's exactly what to say. Chapter 14. Exactly what to say when you start to close. Before I tell you exactly what to say to start your close, I want to tell you what not to say because I hear salespeople all over the country saying it and it's killing their production. The biggest mistake in sales when closing a lead is the following statement. So what do you think? I also often hear, how does that sound? Asking this type of how'd I do question in no way helps you sell more effectively. I get why you do it. Humans are insecure by nature and need to hear someone tell them they did a good job, that they liked what they heard, but that is not what a professional salesperson does. Here's another quip I never forgot from my sales coach at Fashion Rock. The lion doesn't ask the lamb for food. You don't ask them for their feedback after you pitch. If you followed all the steps in the conversion code sales call so far, you know your pitch was great. There's no reason to ask someone who doesn't do this for a living how you did. If you want feedback on your pitch, get it from your coaches and colleagues, not your customers. If there's one thing you can add and should 100% script and use every single time, it is your transition to a closing statement. You do not want to fumble at this critical juncture. It's the fourth quarter. You are on the one-yard line. Don't get cute. Now that you know what not to say, here's exactly what to say when you recognize that it is the perfect moment to close. Great. So here's what happened next. Here's what happens next. If every time you pitch for the rest of your life, you say, great. So here's what happens next. Instead of, so what do you think? You will increase your closing rate instantly and dramatically. Remember, you are using this transitioning closing statement as you complete your final feature benefit tie down. As soon as they agree to the last tie down, you immediately say verbatim, Great. So here's what happens next. Then you quickly foreshadow the next steps of what working together looks like by recapping what you're going to do to solve their problem and then clearly stating the costs and terms of them making a purchase. Great. So here's what happens next. Our company is going to do A, B, and C for you, which accomplishes your goals of X, Y, and Z. The price is X and the terms are Y. Again, we are going to do A, B, and C, and the price is X. Don't be afraid to reiterate the offer, price, and terms. Just be sure when you do, there is no trepidation in your voice or they will pick up on it. It's closing time. Now that you have smoothly transitioned out of your pitch and started your close, it is officially time to ask the lead for their business. Chapter 15. The two-step close. You never want to get to the end of a well-thought-out call and then blow it at the finish line. This is payday. This is why I also make sure I use a proven script when I close. To start closing, you're going to use what is known as the trial close. This is a question that isn't as scary as credit or debit or yes or no, but it does force the lead to visualize that things are proceeding without you having to hard close them. Here's an example of the first step, the trial close in action. Step one, the trial close. Remember, we started our close with great, so here's what happens next. Our company is going to do A, B, and C for you, which accomplishes your goal of X, Y, and Z. The price is X and the terms are Y. Again, we're going to do A, B, and C and the price is X. Now you're going to trial close by asking something like, Did you want to use your work or personal email address for our records? 
when I sold loans, I would say, is a weekday or a weekend better for the appraisal to come out? A real estate agent might say, are you going to want to look at houses during the day or early evenings? At Curator, I say, what day of the week would be best for your first coaching call? With each of these examples, my goal is to get the lead to visualize that they are moving forward without having to directly ask them for their business. By doing this, they will typically either A, answer your question, confirming that they are primed to be closed immediately using the next step, the slot close, or B, ask a buying question or give you an objection before the answer. These are both good outcomes. Even if it is an objection, you are much better off trying to arc, a technique you will learn in the next chapter, now than when you are really closing. If you ask for someone's credit card or commitment to work together and they object, it's awkward no matter how smooth you are. You want to use a trial close to uncover any last objections before you go in for the jugular using the slot close to finish them off. Interesting language he chose, right? It's more that lion and lamb's language, you know? Step two, the slot close, S-L-O-T. I don't want to confuse you there. The second they answer your trial close question, you really close by giving them two more choices. This time, though, both answers they can give are actually going to be a yes, and you are going to close them. You literally want them to say as soon as they finish their sentence answering your trial close, okay, great, and did you want to use a credit or debit card for the payment? Or, okay, great, did you want to use a business or personal card for the payment? I'm not sure exactly why, but it's much easier for a person to make a choice like credit or debit, business or personal, and the heat of that moment than it is for them to answer, so are you in, so are you moving forward. I often hear salespeople who normally never stutter start to when they ask someone for their credit card number. That shakiness in your voice and tone can be instantly identified by the caller on the other end. Sadly, everything you have done up until this moment can be thrown away by simply lacking the confidence to sound like you have done this over and over before. Remember, the lion doesn't ask the lamb for food, so don't act like a lamb when you ask for payment. If you do, the lead becomes the lion and you become the dinner. Here is how a professional salesperson asks for a credit card number. Please read me the 16 digits on your card from left to right four at a time. Then after each block of four, make sure you even add an okay so they know you're keeping up and writing it down. Act like an expert and you just might become one. Obsess that your words are coming out confidently and clearly when you close. It helps to record their own calls and listen to them back over time to see if there's any trepidation in their voice. Personally, I use Tape a Call Pro mobile app, which lets me record both sides of a call from my cell phone with one click. Anytime you do this, I would highly recommend quickly mentioning that our call is being recorded for training purposes to cover yourself and leave zero ambiguity around what you are doing and why. By recording your sales calls with permission and playing them back while you take notes, you aren't doing anything legal, you're improving. Illegal meaning you got permission, right? Sometimes, depending on what you sell when you are closing, you are not actually asking for payment, rather asking to meet in person. If that is the case, you still want to use the slot close after a trial close. The only change to the script would be replacing the previous example with, so would you like to meet at 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. tomorrow? Or can I stop by Saturday or Sunday to wrap this up? 
No matter how you define a close, using the trial close and slot close techniques back-to-back can boost your confidence and skyrocket your sales. There are a lot of times during this call where you get to go off script and make it your own. When you are closing is not one of these times. By the way, as soon as they say debit or personal, don't be a rookie and lose your cool. It's funny how often the second a salesperson gets a credit card number, they immediately hit and run. This person just gave you their credit card number or commitment to work with you. Don't hang up the second they do, especially after having just spent a good amount of time on the phone with them up to this point. In chapter 17, I will actually teach you what to say when they say yes and how it can increase your retention and show rate dramatically. The ugly truth is, no matter how good you get at the closing the internet leads over the phone, you'll still hear no a lot. When you do, the key is to be prepared for it and do what you will learn in the next chapter, a technique called arcing. Chapter 16, what to say when someone still says no. Let's be honest, even the best salespeople in the world hear no often. You can capture internet leads, schedule quality appointments, and crush your calls, but you will never close 100% of your prospects. So in this chapter, I will teach you what to say when they say no. The best thing about executing the conversion code properly is that you will hear no a lot less than you ever have. Buying questions versus objections. I appreciate your time, but I'm not interested. That's a no. How long does this take? How does the billing work? Can I do X if I change my mind? Those aren't no's. Those are called buying questions. If you did your job properly, people will have started to visualize themselves as a customer, which is exactly what we want. And when they do, their questions quickly change from discovery to mastery. You flipped a switch in their mind that caused them to go from a brick wall mindset to a buying one. So when you close and it's not an explicit yes, remember that doesn't mean it's a no either. Sometimes we take those buying questions for objections in the heat of the moment when really it's just a logistical concern. In fact, it's great to get buying questions. And when you get them, you must remember ARC. ARCing, similar to ARP, and ARC starts with acknowledging the questions they ask and then responding, A-R. The difference is now the last letter that, sounds for, that stands for close, not pivot. The way you ARC is the same way you ARP. I don't know if you guys remember that. Here's an example of using an ARC when you get a buying question when you close. Me. Credit or debit? Them. How much is this going to cost me? Me acknowledge. How much is this going to cost you? Great question. Respond, we charge A, which gets you B with C terms. Doing this accomplishes the goals you told me of X, Y, and Z. Close. So, did you want to use your credit or debit card? Short, sweet, strategic. That is what you want to focus on when you answer buying questions. Far too often, salespeople get a buying question and go into a long monologue to answer it, mistaking it for an objection. Rookie move. You always spent so much time up to this point with him on the phone. Trust the process. When you get a buying question at the end of your call, just arc. Think of the close like the fourth quarter of the big game. It's okay to be nervous, but you can't fumble when it matters most. This is why coaches spend a ton of time diagramming and practicing late game situations with their players and why Michael Jordan took all of his game-winning shots in his mind well before he took them on the court. 
When the lights go on and the game is real, they are settled and confident, knowing they have a clear scripted plan of action. You need to feel the same level of confidence when you're making your close. Pro tip, be sure to make a list of the most common buying questions you get. How long will this take to set up? How does this contract work? What happens if I decide to cancel, etc., and develop an arc that works every time for each. Once you nail the arcs that work the best, ride them until the wheels fall off. Using arc to overcome objections. You you probably already know the objections you get most as a salesperson. So get ready for what to say back by using proven arcs that work. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Just develop and then lean on your go-to arcs. Here is an example of using an arc when you close and get the spousal objection. Me. So to get started, I need you to read your credit card number to me four digits at a time. Them. I need to talk to my wife first. Me. Acknowledge. You want to talk to your wife first? I can appreciate that. I always talk to my wife before making big decisions. Respond. Were you and your wife on the same page before you started this call? Do you think if we bothered her at work or a conference called her in right now, she'd be okay with accommodating or accomplishing your goals of X, Y, and Z? Close. Great. Then we get the paperwork over to her too. All I need to do that is for you to read me your credit card number from left to right, four digits at a time. Here is an example of an arc when you get the I want to wait objection. Me. So to get started, I need you to read your credit card number to me four digits of a time. Them. I need to wait and think it over. Me. Acknowledge. You want to talk to, you want to talk to wait and think it over. I can appreciate that. I do the same thing. Respond. Let's say we could time travel to 30 days from today. Would accomplishing your goals of X, Y, and Z change? Sometimes indecision is the worst decision. Close. If your goals will be the same a month from now, then please read me your credit card number from left to right so we can accomplish them and wrap this up. Here is an example of an arc when you get a cost objection. Me. So to get started, I need you to read your credit card number to me four digits at a time. Them. I like what you sell, but it's not in my budget at this time. Me. Acknowledge our prices. Acknowledge. Our price is too high for you? Sorry you feel that way. That usually means I actually didn't do a good enough job explaining everything that it included. Respond. Let's take a step back. When I asked you earlier, you told me that your goals were A, B, and C. And if we did X, Y, and Z, it would make sense to work together. While I can respect that the price is an issue for you, there's also a cost to not taking action today. You don't accomplish your goals. Close. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I know you're making the right decision. Let's wrap this up. Do you want to use a credit or debit card? While you can predict and prepare for your most common objections, inevitably, there will be a few you cannot foresee. I've actually gotten to the end of a great call only to have the lead tell me that I need to pray about this first. That is a very tough tough objection to overcome without being a dick. That is why you have to lean on your skills like ARC. Even when someone throws you a curveball, you can at least still take a solid swing at it. Here's an example of an ARC when you get an out-of-the-box question or objection. Me. So to get started, I need you to read me your credit card number four digits at a time. Damn. Sorry, Chris, but I need to pray about this first. Me, acknowledge. You want to pray about this first? I can appreciate that. I've prayed before buying something too. Respond. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed about this before today? If you were to put me on hold and pray right now, which I seriously don't mind if you do, if that makes you feel better, do you think 
whoever you pray to would want you to accomplish your goals of X, Y, and Z. That's assault. <laughs> I'm going off script here. That's a bold close. Grant Cardone has a, has a close too, where he says, well, let's pray together. Anyway, the close. Then let's wrap this up. Do you want me to use, do you want to use your credit or debit card to move forward? I am not suggesting that using these arcs will work every single time, but once you master them, they do work more times than not. And they really help you separate smokescreen objections from the genuine ones. The reality is that it can be difficult to overcome objections. But the other reality is that most of the objections you hear day after day in sales are basically the same. Be prepared for them. Nail these arcs. Call their bluff. How you handle these micro moments or micro moments throughout the call and especially during the close is what will elevate you from a good salesperson to a great one. Still a no using preferred additional outcomes to get a yes. Anyway, you can do everything we talked about in this book and you still get told. No, that's the job. Even if you use the best arc, sometimes you have to arc and reclose several times. The reality is there are some conversations that don't end in a deal. When that happens, you need to immediately shift your focus from what I call preferred addition to what I call preferred additional outcomes. These are the things you would deem a success if a sale is impossible. One preferred additional outcome could be to call them back the same day to see if they're in. This is for people who need to talk to their wife, to pray, or to think about it, or simply can't be sold on your call. A second preferred additional outcome is a next day callback. A third, less appealing preferred additional outcome is to send them some additional information by email and then follow up with them in a week, month, year based on their temperature. It's okay to have a preferred additional outcome be email follow-up, but certainly don't lead with that one. Lead with calling them back the same day or the next day. Remember earlier, I referenced the quote, time destroys all things. Keep in mind here too, when you schedule your follow-up call, the sooner it happens, the better. Even when I get a no, and I deserve a yes, I get a yes. They say, yes, you can call me back later today. That's almost always as good as a sale. They'll close. Tomorrow, that's still pretty good too. And what about if you say, can I call you back later today? And they say no. Well, then how about tomorrow? If that's no too, then it's obviously time to take a step back. Would you mind if I send you some additional information about my company, what we do, and then follow up with you in a week, six months, or a year? I don't want to burn the leads that I get this far with because we did have a good, memorable conversation. I dug deep. I built rapport. I got notes on them. When you are calling someone back later that day, the next day, or even six months later, you need to remember everything about them. So put it in your CRM immediately. Then follow up if they're ever open your lead nurture emails or if they visit your website like I taught you in section two. You can hyper-personalize the first minute of the call of the next call 10 times more when you did this one because you already will know so much about them. Pro tip, salespeople should move on as quickly as possible when they're told no because having a positive mental attitude is so important to getting the next yes. To expedite this, I have an email template that is pre-written because I don't want to write, hey, Thanks again for your time. I know we didn't dot, 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 an email over and over. Have this template pre-written in Yesware or a Google Doc so you can send it very quickly. Remember, having a positive mental attitude and a black lab mentality are a must. It sucks when you get told no, but you've got to bounce back quickly to be an elite sales performer. Thankfully, when you use my sales script and the conversation framework I've given you in this book, you will hear yes more often than you hear no. 
Chapter 17. They said yes. Now what do you say? Congrats. You've made the sale. You cracked the conversion code. Now finish the call strong so they don't back out before you get paid. Hit and run selling is always when a salesperson makes a sale and then within a second or two says, okay, thanks, bye, or okay, great, I'll be in touch, goodbye. It's a rookie move that we make in the heat of the moment and it is easily avoided with a simple script. As soon as someone finishes reading you their payment information, you are going to say exactly what you said when you identified the exact moment to close in chapter 13. Great, so here's what happens next. But instead of foreshadowing the next steps, and buying like you did last time, this time you're going to foreshadow the next steps and being a customer. Like, now I'm going to get you over everything you bought plus some additional information that you will find useful that that we send our new customers. Then this is going to happen. Then finally, that happens. Got it? Good. In all seriousness, come up with exactly what you want to say after they say yes. You'll be hearing a lot more. Many commission sales jobs have what is called a clawback where they take money back out of future tech if someone cancels after they buy. There is no worse feeling in sales than having your commission taken back. By foreshadowing the next steps in the process as soon as they buy, you can do your part in reducing churn and keeping cancellations down. And if your sale is that you are meeting them in person, foreshadowing the process this one last time can help increase your show rate at appointments. I even take this post-sale tactic a step further by having an amazing email template. I use Yesware for Gmail for this. Ready to send them as soon as we hang up. I call it thanks. It has some helpful additional details and online articles about what they just bought. And it thanks them again for their time and for buying from me. I once read a story about Lewis Howes, who was selling 1,000 online training products and sending those who bought them a $10 Brownie Bits bag. He said that those bags reduce cancellations. I don't send brownies, but I do send bond.co. Do use bond.co to send a handwritten note to every lead I've had a meaningful conversation with or that I close. The note arrives a few days later and thanks them for their time while letting them know I am looking forward to working together. The only thing I usually change on these is the first name and the address that I send it to, which only takes a second. I also make sure I include my cell phone number and email address where I sign in my name. Be as strategic about your sales sticking as you are about making them in the first place. Besides, you just had an amazing call with this person. You're getting paid because of them. They said yes after you dug deep and used emotional buying reasons against them without their even knowing. The least you can do is tell them you enjoyed the date, call before you close the door, hang up the phone. Now that you know how to capture and close the internet leads, I'm going to teach you how to turn those closed sales into even more free leads. Chapter 18, how to turn a closed internet lead into even more sales. It takes real work to to capture and close internet leads. So you want to make sure that all your effort creates more easier to convert leads in the form of referrals from your existing and past clients. As I am sure you can guess by this point in the book, I do not leave this up to chance. I have developed a simple system for asking for referrals from current or past clients at the same right or the exact right moment. A net promoter score NPS is a customer loyalty metric that is calculated by asking a simple question. On a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer us a friend or colleague? What the research has shown is that nines and tens are promoters of your brand, 
Sevens and eights are passive, and anything six or less is a detractor. The survey usually allows for them to give one additional answer, why. I make it a habit to send out NPS surveys two to four times a year to all of our current and past clients. When I do, immediately afterwards, I segment the responses by nines and tens, and I give that list to our happiest current and past customers back to the salesperson who originally closed them. The person who closed them then follows up with a phone call to check in and see how things are going. Then, after they speak to them, we send them a handwritten note using bond.co, thanking them for their loyalty and business. At the end of the strategic timed check-in call, and then a PS in the note we mail, we simply ask them if there's anyone else you know who we could help. Boom. If they're willing to give you a name or two, which they usually are, we knew they loved us before we called. Try to also get the referral's email address and phone number. As soon as you do, let your scheduler do the job of following up to book an appointment. Or you can call and book it yourself if you are the scheduler and the salesperson. One mistake I see salespeople making day after day is not treating a referral lead the same as an internet lead. Meaning, you must always take it from the top and use all the steps in the call. Don't skip building trust just because you think they trust you as a referral from a friend. The only difference between a sales call with a referral and an internet lead is that you should use that information in your hyper-personalized opening. Hey, John, I was speaking with Susie Smith, and she mentioned that you might be interested in hearing about what we do at Curator. We've really helped Susie grow her business, and we would love to see if we can do the same for you. Then you do everything else exactly as you would with a web lead. Everything. Gain control, dig deep, feature, benefit, tie down, the whole experience. Don't cut any corners when some when working referral leads. And remember that no matter where or how someone may learn about you, every lead is now an internet lead and will always check you out online, either pre or post call before buying. So always take it from the top. You can also generate a ton of referrals from your closed internet leads by simply staying in touch with them through email, Facebook, post sale. When you're doing what you learned in this book regarding email marketing, Facebook ads, and retargeting, you will have plenty of chances to stay on top of mind long-term in a unique and meaningful way. It is such a great feeling as a business owner to to be able to send a helpful email or run a genuinely fresh, uh, useful Facebook ad to a new blog post I wrote that does not even try to make sales but close a few anyway. I have hundreds of replies in my inbox that go something like this. Awesome tips, Chris. Thanks. I wanted to introduce you to so-and-so. I told them they had to check out the work you are doing. Once you get good, get greedy. Capturing internet leads, creating quality appointments, and closing more sales, as you have hopefully learned in this book, requires art and science, speed and tenacity, heart and heartlessness. But the one thing that cracking the conversion code does not require is luck. Dan Gilbert, who I mentioned I work for in the introduction and who is the founder of Quicken Loans and the owner of the Cleveland uh, Cavs, said something once that I'll never forget. I will leave you with what he said. I often close out my keynote speeches at conferences with it. Keep it in mind as you now go off on your personal crusade to crack the conversion code. Innovation is rewarded, but execution is worshipped. Nothing in this book works if you don't. 
If after reading and executing on what you've learned in the conversion code, your business improves and you start capturing and closing more internet leads, please send me a quick email, chris at curator.com with specific details. Bonus. Checking the analytics and metrics that actually matter and what to do based on what you find. One of the best things about digital marketing is the analytics and metrics it provides. One of the worst things about digital marketing is the analytics and metrics it provides. When I was with Quicken Loans, one of the sayings that really stuck with me and has also resonated for the audiences I keynote for is innovation is rewarded, execution is worshipped. So much that I even ended this book with the quip, hoping it would resonate with you as we part ways. When it comes to the conversion code, execution is worshipped. The devil is not in the details. The devil is not in the executing. There are two things that matter significantly more than digital metric that I check, my gut and my growth. This simple G-squared mindset guides my decisions much more so than page views, cost per click, cost per lead, cost per acquisition, click-through rate, reach, conversion rate, or open rate ever will. G2 is simple. Do you feel like what you are doing online is working? Gut. If your prof is your profit increasing growth. When the answers are yes and yes, pour more gas on the fire. Internet lead generation and conversion comprise several moving parts like a website, landing pages, SEO, social media, email marketing, marketing automation campaigns, CRM, and SMS to name a few. Each of these moving parts comes with its own set of analytics and metrics you could check. In fact, more frequently, companies are using machine learning or are hiring people called data data analysts or data scientists, and their entire purpose is to look at the data and make recommendations based on what they find. The sad reality about digital marketing data is that it really can be spun in a way that makes it sound like things are great even when they are not. Don't let all the social media gurus fool you. The best thing Facebook and the internet in general enable is not building a community or engaging your fans. It is building your business and bottom line. You can do that by executing what you learned in this book. I once did an audit of the Facebook advertising ROI for the top 10 for a top 10 mortgage company. I had their CEO send me their latest report they got each month from high dollar social media agency they had hired. My immediate reaction was that it must have been prepared by someone who really wanted to keep their job. It was all smoke and mirrors. As a salesperson, first and foremost, I need leads to call. Ideally, lots of them. So the number of and the cost per lead matters big time. As I looked at the report, I was nauseated by the focus on reach, engagement, new likes, and popular posts. I would love to see you try to take those things down to the bank and deposit them. When I finally found the part of the report that addressed a number of leads generated and cost per lead, their lead volume and conversion rate was terribly low, and their cost per lead was at least 10 times higher than it should have been. To put that into perspective, that gets me excited about optimizing my marketing campaigns and looking at the metrics that matter that could have gone from 150 leads a month to 1,500 leads a month. With the exact same ad spend, they had used the conversion code. What they're doing was passive. What I taught you is purposeful. To keep you from wasting all of your time on pixels when you are better off focusing on people, 
I've put together a list of analytics and metrics that actually matter and what you should change and not change based on what you find. Many of these metrics will be familiar to you just in name alone, like in Google Analytics, time on site, or page views per visit. It's pretty straightforward, as are metrics like reach and frequency in Facebook Insights. The gold in this bonus chapter is as much what I am not including as it is what I am. While you could certainly argue that I am leaving out something critical, for me, the following is more than enough to check and try to improve. We started with websites and landing pages in chapter one, so let's start with those here as well. Website metrics that matter. Total number of and cost per unique visitor. You can easily calculate your total ad spend each month. You also want to know how many unique people visited your site during that same time period. This gives you a quick way to calculate your true cost per unique visitor. Total ad spend divided by unique visitors equals cost per unique visitor. If you are getting a lot of free traffic through email, blogging, social media, or SEO, this will certainly lower the cost dramatically. Total number of leads. How many leads did your website generate during the month? Be sure you are using a unique email address and or unique phone number on your website so you can track those who bypass the contact form or reach out another way. I do include new blog subscribers as website leads. While many of these are not ready to transact now, they will be later as long as you do what I taught you in section two. Conversion rate. It is important to have a baseline for how your site converts traffic. By knowing this, you can feel much better about sending paid traffic there and spending more time on SEO. As an example, if my website is converting at 3% with the various calls to action I have in place, I know if I drive 10,000 visitors a month, I will get a minimum of 300 leads. Keep in mind that the conversion code taught you landing pages are greater than websites for paid traffic for this exact reason. Landing pages, landing pages, landing page conversion rates can be 10 times higher than a website conversion rate thanks to their one page, one purpose focus. However, the leads that convert through your website will often be of higher quality, even though they are lower quality when compared to the landing pages. More on landing page metrics that matter ahead. New versus returning visitors. With a well-designed website, content that is optimized for search engines and social media, a blog with a solid frequently asked question, and a foolproof email follow-up system in place, your website will get a lot of new traffic. But be sure to also keep an eye on returning traffic. Often someone will visit your website more than once, even a few dozen times before becoming a lead. I like to make sure that at least 25% of my website traffic each month is returning, not new. The cost of getting people back to your website is a fraction of the cost of getting them there in the first place the first time. Page views per visit. If your page views per visit per visitor are too low, it is very difficult to capture any leads. When you share a link to a piece of great content on Facebook, the more natural next step for that visitor will be to leave, read something else related to what they just read, or to visit your homepage. When they click through on your homepage, they will have a plethora of additional ways to register or to go deeper into what you do. This is why we spend so much time in chapter one obsessing about your site's design. Bring them with content. Wow them with your brand. Average time on site. Similarly to page views per visit, if your average time on site is too low, it is also very difficult to capture any leads. 
Many of the trapdoors we place on your site are dependent upon them visiting certain pages, taking certain paths, or spending a certain amount of time before they are triggered. It is hard to build trust to the point where someone would contact you and work with you if your average time on site is 31 seconds. There are exceptions to this rule. Maybe your site is 100% focused on linking someone to a landing page. If that's the case, the lower the time on site, the better, potentially. But for most websites, if you want live chat, pop-ups, lead magnets, and contact forms to work, you need people to stay for a few minutes. I also like to look at my content and sort it by the highest time on site average. You would be amazed at how bringing your visitor in using one piece of content can cause them to stay for 10 minutes and another may cause them to leave after 10 seconds. By identifying my highest time on-site pieces of content, I can advertise more effectively and get more bang for my buck when I buy traffic. Top performing pages. I am constantly looking at what our top performing pages and blog posts are. This is the easiest way to identify new content we should create. I also want to make sure that the pages and posts that get the most traffic are the most optimized for social sharing and search and with lead magnets for lead generation. One thing you can do right now that will pay itself back again and again is to go into your Google Analytics and look for your top 10 pieces of content or pages of all time. Spend a few minutes on each one, re-optimizing them with the tips you got in this book. You must identify your HTTP's highest traffic pages and continue making them better and creating more like them. Traffic sources, direct, when someone types your URL into the browser, social, traffic from social media sites, organic search, SEO, referral, like from your email newsletter or another website linking to you, and paid search, SEM, are all easy to find and monitor in Google Analytics. Most of these are straightforward. Your goal is to be, is to be fairly diverse. You don't want all your eggs in one basket. As an example, even if you start your traffic, even if you start your traffic is all coming from Facebook, your direct traffic should increase as your brand gets out there more often and your referring traffic should go up as well with follow-up emails that link back to you. One pro tip I even see many professional marketers miss is tracking their mass emails or social media campaigns as hyper-specific referring sources of traffic into Google Analytics. This can be easily done by using Google's URL builder form. Not only can you do this for email marketing or Facebook ads, but you can also do this to better uniquely name and track any online campaign you run involving a link. G squared. Doing this makes it very easy to better identify how a specific campaign performed. You will find that certain types of content lead to a much deeper and longer visit than others. Not only will you know how many total people and total page views a campaign created, but also you can see what the average length of the visit was compared to par for your site's overall traffic. I find that my email newsletter campaigns with links back to my site are some of the best performing links for time on site and page views per visit. Top exit pages. When you optimize your site and content like I covered in chapters one, two, and three, you'll have a plethora of outbound links that go to other websites and also to your lead magnets landing pages. Well, you may think that your top exit pages are a bad thing. When looked through the conversion code lens, they are a good thing. Remember, landing pages always convert better than websites, so it can be a win to understand which pages the most people are exiting from. 
This can be a good indicator that you best optimize those pages with the right links and calls to action. Paid search results. One thing that every company should do is at least run an SEM or a pay-per-click campaign in Google for your own brand or name when it is searched. When you buy an ad for what someone was literally searching for, it gets clicked a lot. With an ad in Google versus just relying on organic results, we get much better control over what is displayed and the calls to action. Paying for this and any other keywords you may be advertising in Google can become costly, so it's imperative you look at your analytics for the results of those campaigns. Landing page metrics that matter. Total number of visitors. When you spend money on Facebook ads or time on optimizing your website and your content with lead magnets to get people to your landing pages, you want to make sure that work is paying off. Building landing pages is not enough. You must purposely drive traffic to them each and every month without fail using the tactics you learned in this book. Most companies are keeping traffic only of the number of visits to their primary website. You need to keep track of that and the number of visitors to your landing page. Total number of leads and the cost per lead. Using a CRM integration or even a simple spreadsheet, you need to track the total number of leads from your landing page each month. You also want to divide that by the money you spent to get the traffic to them. This gives you your true cost per lead. Conversion rate. Now that you have your number of visitors and your total number of leads, you have your conversion rate. Landing pages literally convert anywhere between 10 to 100% based on a number of factors. And you have to be careful to simply look for the highest conversion rate possible. Many times for me, a landing page that converts at 6% nets my company more revenue and growth and actually paying customers than a landing page that converts at 70%. Why? The amount of information you collect on your landing page will certainly impact your conversion rate. But again, you have to find a balance because the more you collect, the better you will empower your sales team when they call. This is when I apply a G squared mindset. If a landing page is working, it means that sales and marketing all agree that we are getting good leads from it and growing because of it. If I know in my gut something is working, regardless of how the data may compare or juxtapose a baseline, I don't overanalyze. Traffic sources. Sometimes the best thing that your website does is send people to your lead magnet slash landing pages. If the foregoing website metrics are poor, but your website is a huge referral source to your landing pages, which are capturing leads that are converting into sales, you're in a great position. This is why G squared matters with all metrics. If you're growing and you know things are working, it would be very scary and naive to make landing page changes that marginally improve cost or quantity of leads even if the metrics are ugly on the surface. Just like with your website and its traffic sources, be aware of what the best source of traffic are for your landing page. As with your website, where 10% of your content may end up getting you 90% of your page views, 10% of your landing pages might end up getting you 90% of your leads. Once you find and launch one that works, ride it until the wheels fall off and don't get too cute. Just focus on getting what works in front of more people. You want the traffic to your landing pages and lead magnets to rival that of your website. Sure, you will most certainly get way more page views, visitors, and time on site using traditional website and blog. But those things will not convert leads at nearly the rate your landing pages will. As an example, if we got 100,000 page views a month on curator.com, 
I would want to also get at least 25,000 page views on our landing page during that same period. Facebook metrics that matter. Link clicks. The majority of our focus on Facebook is driving traffic back to our website and landing pages using links. So I keep a close eye on how many link clicks each ad I run gets. If an ad is only getting good reach, but not a lot of clicks, I bail. Click-through rate. The average click-through rate in the United States in the first quarter of 2015 was 0.84%. By doing what I taught you in this book, you'll be closer to 2 to 5%. I have even had Facebook ads get higher than 10% click-through rate. A good rule of thumb would be to try between 1.5% to 3%. Under 1% is not ideal. Over 2.5% is strong. Reach. To get the volume of ads I need, I also have to factor in the reach of the ads I run. If you want hundreds of clicks and leads, you can't target 2,000 people. Think of reach like this. If you target your ads at the size of a large university or larger, they will get a lot of action. If you target your ads at the size of a large school, they won't. There will be times when you want to reach a small number of perfect clients. Just keep in mind that when you do, the volume of clicks and leads won't be there. So the quality will be better. Impressions. When you run as many Facebook ads as I do, the impressions can really add up. While I normally don't get excited about impressions, they do have tremendous value for me in one undeniable way. I am everywhere online in the eye of the lead. And I hear time after time again, I saw your stuff follow me around. Your goal for total impressions should be the number of people you want to reach times the number of times you want to reach them. You can be better off having 100,000 people see your ad 10 times each versus having 1 million people see it once. Off script. This is kind of like um, when you send direct mail, right? You don't just send one postcard to the list. You know, you send them, you keep sending them postcards until whatever distress event passes, or like if you're sending it to absentee owner until they sell to you or someone else or tell you to remove, remove uh, them from your list. Back to the book, Relevance Score. Facebook now grades each ad that you run on a scale of 1 to 10. While they have not disclosed everything that goes into into their scoring system, be rest assured that their underlying goal of the score is to identify quality versus crappy ads. Google uses a similar approach in scoring how pay-per-click campaigns are performing. The better the score, the better the ad. The better the score, the better your future ads will be placed and positioned. Also, a high score usually means that you got a high level of engagement which leads to Facebook showing the ad to more people for free organically. Frequently, while I do want to reach a lot of people several times each with my ads, I don't want the frequency at which they see them to get too high. If someone has seen my ad 30 plus times and is still not engaged, I'd rather stop that ad and come up with another angle that might work. I also try not to kill an ad until it's seen at least a handful of times minimum. You Cannot expect your ad to be seen only once and get everyone who will click to click it the first time they see it. Per ad espresso, the more the frequency of the Facebook ad increased, the more the click-through rate decreased and the average cost per click increased. The numbers don't lie. At a frequency of 9, the average cost per click increased by 161% compared to the beginning of the campaign. So as frequently, so as frequency increases, so does cost per acquisition. Bottom line, frequency really matters. So keep an eye on it. 
most popular posts. I am constantly using my Facebook uh, pages insight tab to identify my top performing posts. As my number one purpose on Facebook is link clicks, I sort all my old posts so the ones with the most clicks all time are right on top. Then I spend a few minutes figuring out why I'm planning to run more ads like the best ones I find. Email marketing metrics that matter. When it comes to my email campaigns, I look at a few specific metrics. As important as emails are to the conversion code, you will want to keep an eye on how the ones you send perform. The obvious and most important metric will be the size of your list and making sure it is always growing. When I look at my email marketing data, I focus on open rate, click-through rate, reply rate, and a percentage of those who unsubscribed. Most systems today do not track how many people reply automatically the way they do opens, clicks, and unsubscribes. But if the replies go to you, you can search your inbox by RE subject line and calculate them manually. Opens and clicks are great and solid indicators that we should call a lead as I discussed in section two. But replies are what what conversation started and conversation creates closes. If you search email, open, and click-through rates by industry, you get a good baseline to work against if you have no idea what is good in your vertical. My email list currently averages greater than 30% open rates, greater than 3% click-through rates, and less than 1% unsubscribe rate for some context. But I can also, anytime I need to, get those numbers up to over 50%, and 10% by A, being very clever with my subject line and calls to action, or B, segmenting my list down so what I send them is more relevant than something I might send to everyone. By the way, do not let unsubscribes discourage you in any way. Your email list having some churn is healthy as long as it's not too high, and you are always adding new leads into it. Plus, we want to send emails to people who want to buy, not people who want to bitch. Don't forget that you need to check these metrics for your mass emails, but also your drip emails. I'm amazed at how few companies make changes and improvements based on hard data to their monthly and drip email campaigns. Small tweaks can net large results with email copy. We once asked through email for leads to tell us about your current home's condition, which did get, which did get some strong replies, but by changing it to, On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the current condition of your home? We removed some of the friction and dramatically increased the reply rate, even though at the heart of our message was basically to ask the same question. I also find it useful to look more closely at which links got the most clicks when there is an email with multiple calls to action. Your first link will almost always get the most clicks no matter what you do, but I also find takeaways in seeing the volume of clicks for each specific link that was an option. This helps me keep an eye on what resonates or not with my list and leads. If a link farther down gets more clicks than several above, it is immediately taken note. Lastly, I go back once a quarter to see what email subject lines perform the best for getting opens and clicks. This gives me clarity around what my next quarter's message should focus on. Great subject lines for emails are just as important as great titles are for blog posts. Sales metrics that matter. Total number of sales. That's it. Like my first sales coach told me, there's only enough room on my spreadsheet at the end of the month for results, not excuses intentionally. Sure, number of leads called, number of leads received, number of appointments scheduled, show rate, close rate, 
total talk time logged and hours work can be good metrics to watch and will certainly have a direct correlation with the results. But only results matter. Make sure you are paying your marketer, scheduler, and closer based on closed leads, not vanity metrics that don't actually drive the bottom line. I am also a fan of feeding the fat, meaning that your top paid salesperson should always make more than the CEO does, minus any crazy bonuses or stock options they may get. For example, if I paid myself as owner of Curator $150,000 a year, I better have a clear compensation plan for my top performing reps to make $150,001. If you look at the cover of this book, after an arguably complex journey to get to where you have cracked the conversion code, all that is at the bottom of my funnel diagram is a dollar sign. This is because the entire purpose of the conversion code is to put a laser focus on making more money by using the internet and all the innovations that have recently occurred in the worlds of marketing and sales. Again, there are other metrics that matter that I am not including here on purpose. I am sure I will even get a few nasty emails, especially from marketers saying that I have really oversimplified this section. I don't care. My G squared matters more than any argument, however valid they could make. I hope by sharing my personal journey as, I specifically, as specifically as I could that I've inspired you to take your marketing, sales, lead generation, and lead conversion efforts to heights you didn't even know existed. There were so many people who taught and inspired me along the way, it only felt right to teach and inspire others in return. I love how to hear, I love to hear how executing the conversion code works for you. Please email chris at curator.com, message me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash curator chris, or tweet me at, at chris underscore smith with specific results you get from reading the book and doing the work. Please use the hashtag the conversion code when you do. Also, please pass this book along to any marketer or salesperson who you think it can help, preferably ones on a huge companies who should bring me in to teach them the conversion code and coach their sales and marketing team. You might have foreseen a well-timed call to action to close out the book, right? Notes. And I'm not sure. What do I want to do here, folks? Because this book, normally, this is the end of the book. There's a section called notes, which is like, a refi- I guess it's like a refining um everything they talked about before. Normally what I would do is we do another part and I would go through and kind of like distill what I thought were the most important parts. The problem I'm having with this folks in this conversion code is that Chris Smith did not include much fluff and or he's a significantly better salesperson than I am, right? Which he is because he has a shit ton more money. Uh, I just not sure yet how, I can reduce a book that is only what 162 pages and seems so packed with vital information, how I can reduce this further. So I'm going to put this out here to you guys. Send me an email, Jeremy at renegadedetroit.com. Put in the subject line, the conversion code. If you have an opinion on how or what I should do, to encapsulate or, or sum up the conversion code. And the answer might just be, this is the end of it, right? Maybe the answer is it is so, you know, refined or so reduced to its essential components that it'd be difficult to summarize. Um, or if you have a suggestion on how I might summarize it, that makes sense. Um, that would be valuable 
like the other books I did, I would appreciate it. Jeremy at renegadedetroit.com and put the conversion code in the subject line and go ahead and email it to me. And I appreciate that. And we'll make a decision by next week how and why we're moving forward. All right. All right, folks, that's it for this week. The conversion code. We'll see if we're going to do something different um, when we get to next week's one. Um, I have some other books lined up. I'm going to continue doing this. I think I'm going to go with the millionaire real estate investor or the millionaire real estate agent. If you have an opinion on that one way or another, feel free to send me an email to Jeremy at renegadedetroit.com. All right. Let me know. Maybe if I get some votes, if I don't get anything, I'll just pick one, but maybe, you know, the super fans want me to do one before the other. And you know, I love you super fans. I know who my top 10 fans are, at least if they sign in using Facebook or something like that. So if you have an opinion on that, I don't mind doing those first, or maybe my super fans want me to read a different book. Go ahead and include that in the email too. All right. Also, Hey, if you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't already, please go rate and review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. Even if you don't have an iTunes account, I know it's stupid. I know they don't make it easy, but this is one of the best ways to grow the podcast. It's kind of like reviewing things, right? It helps get sales done. It helps more people listen to the podcast because you know how many podcasts there are. And, and if you don't enjoy the podcast, please don't. Okay. Uh, but if you really do, and if it's helped you in any way, please go rate and review. I really appreciate it. Also share, share with your friends, social media, please share this. We want to get, we want to grow the podcast. We want to get more listeners and we want to help more people, which is how we're going to monetize this, which is how we're going to keep this podcast going forever. Cause I can't do it free forever. Right? So help a brother out. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're looking to attend any of the local meetings, like maybe you'll get here, maybe you're listening from like 30% of our listeners are out of state and out of country. So, hey, come check us out. Next time you're here, go to meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Maybe you live locally here in Metro Detroit and you haven't been in a while. Check it out. Come say hi. Um, maybe you're visiting. You want to come say hi. Just come say hi, right? If you want to reach out to me too, you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And of course on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. I don't know how to use that yet. And of course you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash whole Detroit wholesalers. All right. As I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I do this. I do this all the time. There are many distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits that prevent you from starting and sticking to your goals. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And I want to throw this in there even for people like me, because uh, I know we're we're all different. We all have different uh, challenges we're facing in life. Things rarely go to plan, right? Stick with it. Don't give up. I really appreciate your attention. I know you could be doing lots of other things right now. And until the next podcast, crush it.